On behalf of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, good morning. Oh, I like that. That never happens. Good morning. Let's say that again. Good morning. I like it. I feel like I'm at church now. Um, I'm Kimberly Flowers, and I direct the Global Food Security Project and the Humanitarian Agenda here at CSIS. Thank you for joining us, uh, whether you are in the audience or participating through the live web stream. Uh, we're glad that you're here today as we launch our much anticipated and thought-provoking report on risk and resilience in Nigeria. I hope you all got a copy of this as well as the brief when you came in. If you needed extra copies on your way out, just let us know. Um, I wanted to do research on Nigeria for years here at CSIS um, for several reasons. One is because I would say it's the most important country in Africa to the United States. Two, it is unfortunately a prime example of the strong linkage between food insecurity and political instability, which is something we focus a lot here on. Also, a lot of our work has been focused on the US government global hunger and food security initiative called Feed the Future. And so my third reason is when Nigeria was just called an aligned country in the first phase of Feed the Future, it had a larger budget than some of the primary focus countries. So I was always fascinated by that. Also, it's just a really interesting and complicated country. It's the largest economy in Africa. It's a booming population, particularly the youth. Um, the stark dichotomy between the wealth of Lagos and the fact that it also has the largest number of poor people on the planet. And plus, I'd never been there before. So there were a lot of reasons we wanted to do Nigeria. But I'm glad we waited until now. You know, if there's one theme that's sort of come back in the feedback of this report, it's how timely it is. And, and I'd like to talk to you about why it's such a critical time to be looking at hunger, poverty, and malnutrition issues, both from a geopolitical and a strategy perspective. First is this weekend, this Saturday, um, the election there is, uh, some say, the most competitive and arguably most consequential presidential election in Nigeria since its return to civilian rule in 1999. The election doesn't go well. Uh, there's the possibility that we're going to see an uptick in violence and a reversal of development progress. So all eyes should be on Nigeria right now. In terms of U.S. strategy and policy, uh, Feed the Future is moving into its second phase. We like to call it 2.0. Um, and in that, it's the recent addition of climate and conflict-affected countries like Nigeria to the Feed the Future portfolio, to me, perhaps signals what I hope is a closer alignment of the U.S. global food security strategy with U.S. defense and national security interest. And while I see this as a very good step in the right direction, it also presents a real challenge, an opportunity, you could say, because as the report so thoughtfully lays out, working in a fragile environment requires a different approach. In addition, and, and you'll hear this many times today from our, our experts, um, the direction of development has been and should be and continues to be pointi pointing more towards resilience programming. Um, from the proposed restructure at USAID to a shift in the strategic objectives in the global food security strategy, resilience is more than just a development buzzword. Um, and in a complex country like Nigeria, that's exactly where we can watch to see whether the United States can aptly leverage its development leadership and resilience or not. 
Uh, last month, I, I published a brief that laid out a food security policy roadmap for members of Congress. It's called a, a U.S. policy roadmap. If you're super interested, you can Google it. Um, one of my five recommendations in that was to better link humanitarian responses with development strategies. Just to be clear, this isn't some big grand groundbreaking idea, but it's a really important one. And it's also a core recommendation of our Nigeria report that we're launching today. And I both want to applaud and criticize and encourage USAID in this direction because they have to continue to strategically link up and layer agricultural development with governance, peace and security, and humanitarian assistance. It's much easier said than done. Um, but we think that the very successful Feed the Future model is exactly the place to do that and do it well. I'd like to pause and give gratitude to the amazing two authors of this report, Julie Howard and Emmy Simmons. This was a very ambitious research task that they took on. Um, and to be honest, our itinerary in Nigeria had to be completely changed at the last minute in country over a weekend due to security concerns. And throughout it all, they were not only patient and positive travel partners, which is important in this line of work, um, but they were also incredibly thoughtful and thorough researchers. And as you can see by the full report, even if you've just skimmed it, you will see that they've left no stone unturned. And I've learned a lot from them through this project. So Julie, Emmy, thank you so much. Um, your leadership and commitment to agriculture and nutrition is exceptional, and you're making a real mark, I think, in the industry through your thought leadership in this report. Um, I have to share one of my favorite memories from the trip. Um, when we had to reroute by, not say by accident, maybe the universe brought us to the university in Nigeria where Emmy worked as a young researcher nearly five decades before. You read that right, or heard that right, five decades before. She still has the same energy and love, and you'll hear this in her remarks, um, for Nigeria and its great potential, just as she did 50 years ago. And so it's sort of that passion and, and energy that she brings that you'll, you'll see in the report as well. Um, this has been a large team effort, as any of these large research projects are, so I'd also like to thank, of course, Jillian Locke, who's at the back probably live tweeting right now, um, Hillary Dougherty, who's in the front, um, and um, Eilish Simbelji, who is also somewhere. Um, these are from our CSIS Global Food Security team, both past and present. Um, they've helped with so many details, everything from the travel logistics to the graphics in the report, and we couldn't have done it without them. I'd also like to thank Justin Kenny um, and the CSIS iLab team. They helped us produce a short video that's going to help frame um, today's discussion and frame and explain some of the main recommendations. So let's turn to that video now. Thank you. Nigeria is the most important country in Africa. Important because of what it is the seventh largest democracy in the world, Africa's most populous state, the economic powerhouse in the region. Nigeria has enormous challenges on the security front, climatic challenges, and it also has population challenges. There are few countries in the region and perhaps the world, as complex as Nigeria. Although the nation has shown remarkable progress and promise, it struggles with food insecurity, corruption, terrorism, and the effects of climate change. 
A combination of those factors hinders Nigeria's ability to adequately feed its 190 million citizens. Some of the most agriculturally productive areas of the country have some of the worst nutrition indicators. 30% of Nigeria's children are stunted. In some areas, it's much more severe. In the country's northwest states, half of all children are stunted. If not addressed, this can permanently restrict a child from reaching their physical and cognitive potential. Compounding the challenge is Nigeria's explosive population growth. Many demographers predict that it will overtake the United States as the third most populous nation by 2050. Nigeria has multiple conflict zones. The most severe is in the nation's northeast Borno state and surrounding areas, where government forces have been unable to eradicate an Islamist insurgency led by Boko Haram. <laughs> Awal Abukakar now lives in Nigeria's capital, Abuja, where she and her family struggle to survive. The magnitude of the destruction there is almost unimaginable. There's no food, there's no services, there's no school, there's no clinic. Since 2009, over two million people have been displaced. Julie Howard and a team from the Center for Strategic and International Studies Global Food Security Project recently traveled to Nigeria. They examined firsthand the food insecurity and malnutrition challenges in the country and how the U.S. government Feed the Future initiative is responding. Feed the Future, launched in 2010, has helped significantly reduce poverty and malnutrition in 19 first-phase countries. But those nations have relatively stable political environments. The program's second phase, which began in 2017, includes countries affected by conflict and vulnerable to climate extremes like Nigeria. Feed the Future has also added the strategic objective of strengthening the resilience of communities to its global strategy. It is extraordinarily important to help communities uh, not only to uh, survive, but to build up the kind of basic resilience so that uh, a traumatic uh, economic social event doesn't cripple them. The CSIS team spent two weeks in Nigeria in September 2018 and spoke to various stakeholders before, during, and after their visit. Their research findings have been published in a new report and include five key policy recommendations. The first is to prioritize resilience. Now a strategic objective but we feel like, based on the analysis in Nigeria, they're, they're taking a small slice of a problem that's much larger. There's lots that can be thrown at areas that are fragile. So I think take it on board more enthusiastically as part of the Feed the Future mandate and not really view it as a, this is something we have to do. The second recommendation is to strengthen capacities and systems. Feed the Future is really going to have to take a much more local lens. Local people are ultimately going to have to figure out these problems, and it's Feed the Future's job and all U.S. resources to find those leaders in place, those institutions, and build them up. The third recommendation is to capitalize on Feed the Future's strengths. The team also recommends making management flexible. In a context where you're really looking at strengthening local capacity and dealing with issues like security and having to invent on the fly and perhaps get out of some areas really fast and have other areas open up, 
you really need a much more adaptive and flexible approach. And lastly, Feed the Future needs to harness U.S. leadership. So U.S. leadership is needed, again, to rally not only U.S. funding, but to rally other leadership, especially the leadership of the fragile countries themselves, to direct more resources and political will behind addressing the root causes of fragility. Crises that, that, that go on that remain uh, unresolved uh, in Africa uh, are serious. These are uh, problems that require uh, U.S. engagement. And if, in fact, we uh, are not, in fact, engaged in trying to resolve these kinds of problems, uh, they will only fester, get worse, and undermine the stability of the countries that reside next to them. Okay, this worked for Kimberly. Let's see if it works for me. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much. Great. Great to see everybody here. Uh, my name is Julie Howard, and it's a pleasure, really, uh, to be here to discuss this report and also to discuss with you our findings and your questions. I wanted just to say a, a word about our, our motivation for doing this report, and particularly my, my motivation. I had the great privilege of serving in USCID at the very startup of Feed the Future. So the, the very early days, figuring out the strategic objectives, figuring out you know, which Feed the Future countries would be focused countries, how would it actually be operationalized. So then focus was on um, reducing poverty and reducing malnutrition, two strategic objectives. And I am so very proud of all that Feed the Future has accomplished and the fact that we've got legislation uh, authorizing Feed the Future and it's just been reauthorized. So um, we have a Feed the Future at least through 2023. And that's, you know, thinking about where we were a decade ago, that's a huge accomplishment. So, and it's that bipartisan support that Feed the Future has, has, uh, has collected is based on evidence, is based on real accomplishment of Feed the Future in the field. So that's much to be proud of. I'm proud of, of all the Greg and all the Feed the Future colleagues have accomplished. So, so what's the point then of doing this report and raising some, some critical questions? Um, I think you know we look at the statistics, the hunger statistics, and after so many years where hunger, number of hungry people in the world is ticking down, it's starting to go back up again. So 777 million in 2015, 815 million in 2016, it rose again in 2017 to 821, we expect it to go up again. And where are those numbers of hungry people uh, rising? They're rising in countries and in situations where conflict uh, is prevalent. And that conflict often aggravated by, by climate change. 
So we start to ask ourselves, so where is, is Feed the Future in that scenario? If this is where hunger is the, the most pressing problem that we're facing, what might Feed the Future have to offer here? Feed the Future, as it begins phase two, has come up with a, a new strategy, the new global food security strategy, and is responding at the policy level to this challenge. It's added a new strategic objective on strengthening resilience. And I just want to read out so we're all clear. What exactly do we mean uh, by resilience? What does USAID mean? So USAID defines resilience as the ability of communities, people, households, countries, and systems to mitigate, adapt to, and recover from shocks and stresses in a manner that reduces chronic vulnerability and facilitates inclusive growth. That's resilience. So that's now the third strategic objective of Feed the Future, joining the reducing poverty and reducing malnutrition. So the report, in the report, we wanted to look at, well, what does that actually mean on the ground? So as Kimberly related, we were out in Nigeria. We talked to the mission, which had just finished its, uh, its strategy, its country strategy. And we talked a lot to Nigerian government officials and implementing partners. And I'm not going to do a long presentation on the report today. You can read the report. But we wanted to talk about the main findings via a conversation you know, with a, a terrific panel that we have here today. And I'd like to turn to that now. And you've got their full bios uh, in your packet. But just to say who these folks are on my, on my left, I have Prof. Adesoji Adelaja. And I say Prof because that is how everybody in Nigeria refers to him. Yes, where is Prof? Uh, is Prof coming? OK. Uh, Soji and I work together at Michigan State University, and, and to his credit, I'm not sure that he, he thinks of it this way, he's the person who introduced me to Nigeria. I had never been to Nigeria uh, before 2016. 2016. Now, going to Nigeria with Soji is uh, a round of 20-hour days, uh, at least 25 meetings per day, well into the night, and it was a different perspective. I mean, I really felt that, that Soji was doing everything he could to give me insider's perspective. Soji is a, the HANA Distinguished Professor in Land Policy at Michigan State University. He's also a Global Fellow at the Africa Program in Wilson Center. And Michigan State loaned Soji back to Nigeria, the government of Nigeria, for five years, uh, up until 2015. 2016. Yes. So he worked with the president's office, and his primary work was, well, what do we do in the Northeast? So that's why we invited Soji here, to give sort of that perspective from the analyst perspective and the government perspective, what's next for the Northeast. So next, Dina Esposito, who is now the vice president for technical leadership at Mercy Corps. But Dina and I served together in, in USAID, uh, and Dina was head of the, the Food for Peace office at that time. So she has a career's worth of experience both in the implementing partner world and at USAID world. So again, a person who's transiting between, and I, we had many long conversations while we were at USAID together about you know, what is the role of Feed the Future with humanitarian assistance. Okay, okay next we have Phil DeCoss, who's the Senior Vice President of Western Central Africa and Haiti for Comonics. Uh, but that's only sort of tapping the, the very surface of his experience. He spent several decades knocking around West Africa. Uh, and I got to know him a little bit just uh, because the innovative work 
that he has done in different organizations in thinking about market systems development and uh, bringing private se systems mentality to agriculture, so bringing smallholders into the market economy has just been, been really remarkable. So thanks for being here. And then last but certainly not least, uh, we have on the end Greg Collins, who's the Deputy Assistant Administrator and Resilience Coordinator at USAID. And um, I kind of promised Greg I wouldn't do this, but he is the father of resilience uh, at USAID. Okay. <laughs> but, and I think that's, that's really, I first met Greg in 2011, uh, and maybe that was a fortuitous meeting. Uh, we were at a, a meeting uh, in the Horn of Africa you know, the meeting on the Somalia crisis, a meeting convened by the African Union, which was quite significant at that time. And Greg was based out in the region and already starting to percolate thoughts about, you know, how do we get out of the cycle of having to keep delivering and delivering humanitarian assistance without getting at the root of the problem. So Greg, as the father of resilience and the person who's nurtured this, this, uh, this thought uh, through up until it became a strategic objective, became an office of resilience, is here to talk to us. So to begin our conversation, and I want to say we will converse among ourselves first here, and then I really want to leave at least a half an hour you know, for questions and answers with, with all of you. So please be, be noting down your, your thoughts and, and know that we will leave time for that. So Soji, I think as you taught me, in, in Nigeria on those 25-hour days, uh, really an agenda doesn't go anyplace without the government, yeah? And so it's really important to understand where is the, the Nigerian government on this whole topic of resilience? Where is the Nigerian government in terms of responding to the conflict situation in the Northeast? This is a particularly critical week and weekend. Uh, Nigeria is having its presidential election this weekend. Nigerians and others are concerned about the continuing violence and instability, not only in the Northeast, uh, but also the worrying signs of growing violence in other regions, including what's often referred to as the herder farmer conflict in the Middle Belt. Up to now, government interventions in the Northeast have been almost exclusively focused on military actions to reduce the territory controlled by the insurgents. But we know focusing on military actions alone is also not going to help resolve the core social contract issues. In northern Nigeria, the breakdown of the social contract between the people and the government is regarded as a core factor behind the growth of Boko Haram, which is in part responding to this, this vacuum and responding to the economic inequality, extremely poor health, nutrition, education indicators in the region. So, Soji, what steps do you think the incoming Nigerian government leaders at all levels, federal, state, and local levels, will be able to take to reduce some of the risk that threatens society and the economy and build resilience to deal with conflict and climate-related challenges that so many Nigerians are facing? Thanks, Thanks Julie. That's a very loaded question. And uh, I think I'll start by saying that uh, it's taken many years for Nigerians in general and the government to recognize the importance of such things as resilience and countering violent extremism and economic development strategies as a way of uh, avoiding conflict. Um, I remember, oh, probably 2012, when 
much of the focus of the government was a military approach and a security agencies kind of an approach. And I remember the, the effort that myself and a few others put in to begin to start the dialogue, uh, just helping the government understand that uh, the conflict in the Northeast has root causes and that the government needed to do things on the economic side and on the social side and on the countering violent extremism side. Those programs have blossomed um, now, but they're still not enough. What should the government do? I think this is a time of tremendous opportunity for both Nigerians and outsiders. Uh, Nigeria's had a, a government for almost four years now, that has tried everything that he could, and we still have issues of security, um, left the economy still struggling, um, and the government came into uh, existence with a promise of change, sorting out all those problems. So there's some degree of angst and, uh, and concern amongst the Nigerian population. I think that if the current administration stays, they would be a lot wiser. Um, the new administration will be just equally as wise. I think people in government now are beginning to take Nigerians very seriously that they do want change. With respect to food security, uh, my observation, um, and Akin Adeshin and myself were both in Nigeria at the same time, and I saw him struggle trying to push forward a food security agenda. I think generally speaking, action happens in the security sector when it comes to conflict. And the food security community in Nigeria is not connected at all with the places where choices are being made. Uh, one of the things we accomplished was to rewrite the national security strategy, which now includes food insecurity as a critical element of national security. But the people who make decisions about stabilizing society I think they're yet to be fully educated. Um, I think that the capacity of think tanks need to be built. I think leveraging lessons learned in other countries to really inform leadership in Nigeria about the connection between uh, footing security and conflict, climate change and conflict, those things I think are important. Um, I think strengthening capacity, people want to be leaders, and I think there are more people today that want to be leaders than in the past, and strengthen their capacity through evidence-based work um, will be helpful. Strengthening the capacity of NGOs to advocate, uh, I think those are the critical elements. Uh, is the government quite ready at this point? With some help, or with a lot of help, I think it would be. Um, thank you. So, Soji, if I could just ask you a follow-on question to that. So, one of the things the report mentions is the, the low level of resources that Nigeria devotes to agriculture. So, mm -hmm. as many of you know, the, the CADAP commitments, the Malabo mm -hmm. follow-on commitment, governments have committed to 10 percent mm -hmm. budgets, and I think Nigeria is 2 to 3 percent. Mm -hmm. So, what, what do you think it would take to build the constituency? you know, to increase that, that budget number, Nigeria, what would it require? I think that the budget process is driven by voices and the farmers probably have the lowest voice of the entire constituency. But there are many more people who have an interest in secure food, 
the supermarket industry, the food processors, um, several NGOs. I think there needs to be some form of investment in uh, coalescing those voices. Um, I think farmers, by their very nature, given the fact that they live in rural areas, are kind of isolated, they're not connected to media, and so on and so forth. I think active engagement in connecting them with others that have similar interests uh, is going to be key. The NGO community is going to be, be key. And then we've got to figure out ways to get, um, uh, farmers don't have a lot of money, and money buys politics <laughs> in, in, uh, in most countries, if you see what I mean. So we've got to figure out ways to enhance their voices. Yes. Thank you. Thanks, Soji. Dina, I'd like to turn now to you. You have just, just returned from, from a trip to northern Nigeria, and unlike us, you were able to go to the northeast. You were able to, to, to visit Borno, Borno State. Based on what you saw there, can you tell us a little bit about what you saw and how you assess the capacities of people to, to bounce back from you know, the tremendous uh, hardships you know, that they're being subjected to? Is support from organizations such as Mercy Corps or the broader international humanitarian community, in your view, is that enough for them to build resilience? And can you speak about what are some of the important contributions that you think Feed the Future might be able to make to strengthen resilience at different levels, household communities or broader systems? Thanks, Julie. And I just want to um, congratulate Emmy and Julie on this really thought-provoking report and CSIS for having us all here today to talk about this. Um, I am just back from northern Nigeria. I was able to go to Maiduguri as well as to uh, what we call a deep field site, Damboa, a garrison town south of, of Maiduguri, which is uh, encircled, if you will, uh, protected by the Nigerian military. We have 100,000 IDPs crowded into that location along with with the community uh, that's, that, that's hosting them. And I was able to see a wide range of programming and I, I want, uh, just want to tick off a few of them. Uh, I was able to visit with adolescent boys and girls who were engaged in life skills training, savings and financial literacy education. I was able to attend an advocacy training where community leaders were preparing to talk uh, to uh, government officials and others on how to advocate, how to get better energy and water into their communities. I visited with community peace committees and joined an election sensitization program, a super innovative uh, poultry uh, value chain that's looking at how to improve the nutrition of uh, smallholder farmers, women who are uh, recovering from the, the conflict. And then we saw a full-on emergency all at the same time, right? We had, uh, I think, 80,000 people displaced just since December. And uh, we went into some of those displaced camps where people are still living after two months out in open air. And so having a conversation about resilience in the middle of a crisis is, I think, just a really interesting conversation. And I hope that we can uh, talk about that. But I, in me, those, to me, those two things are not mutually exclusive, and we shouldn't think about them um, separately. Uh, I was also there to talk to um, folks about Mercy Corps strategic risk and resilience assessment, which was, we've just completed there. Uh, and it's a methodology we've used in seven or eight countries, but it's the first time that we've used it in a protracted uh, conflict setting. And that is really uh, 
a conversation with uh, over 1,500 people as well as some uh, survey data, which is asking folks, how do you get by and what capacities do you need to cope and, and adapt in the current uh, crisis setting? And what I heard, I think, uh, very much links into what you've talked about in your report and some of the things. It opens the door to some possibilities for the kind of programming I think that Feed the Future does. So one of the things we, we learned and which communities also talked to me about is that they're relying on both old and new social networks to uh, cope and adapt. These are uh, not just their families and friends, but also uh, savings groups and other like-minded associations and groups where people come together. Um, uh, the adolescent boys that I visited with, uh, were, that group was formed uh, years ago, and they continue to meet even though that, that program doesn't exist as a program, but they're savings together and, and talking about, about their future. Um, local markets, incredibly important. Uh, folks are relying much more on local markets than they are on government or NGOs to survive, and we find a correlation between proximity to market and well-being. So um, that may be obvious, uh, but it also uh, suggests that cash-based food assistance, things that incentivize and fuel markets, is really a very important initial um, response to, to building resilience. Um, universally, the young people that I spoke with talked about access to education, employability, and startup uh, capital. They, they're very interested in getting out there and, and having businesses, and they think that access to information, personal mobility, and social connections are, are their keys to success. So again, they're not sitting around in terms of their bouncing back ability. They're not sitting around waiting for a handout. Uh, they're very ready and looking forward to, to, to the future. Um, and so those are just a few of the things that I, that I uh, saw and learned about. Thanks. If I could ask you a follow-on. So, 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 Dina, thinking about uh, when you were at USAID and managing the Food for Peace portfolio, and now your, your current role with Mercy Corps, and thinking a bit about the, the, the Greg question, you know, how do we keep from repeating ourselves, like Groundhog Day, right, in these situations? What, what's on your wish list? You know, what are the things that humanitarian organizations who are, you know, are incredible in their dedication and their their willingness to put their their lives on the line, you know, to 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 make survival possible. Groups, what can't they do? What is difficult for humanitarian organizations and programs to do that you think Feed the Future might be able to help with? That might help to build some of those those foundations. So um, let me think of that. The I think that the, um, the advent, first of all, of cash-based food assistance is a super important start on the humanitarian side. We're seeing they're working on the demand side, really making, uh, reducing barriers to entry for people to go to the market so that they can help themselves, right? But what we're not doing so much on the humanitarian side is the supply side, right? Um, we do work with traders and vendors for sure to be sure that when cash or vouchers are distributed that the market can, can bear that and that the, the vendors and the, and the transporters and the wholesalers are all kind of working together to be sure that those things are there. But increasingly, I think there's an opportunity to de-risk the private sector, to get more private sector actors involved. I think uh, Feed the Future had great success on that in Ethiopia where um, we were able to really incentivize input providers to get out much closer to remote pastoral communities uh, and also um, 
mobile phone, mobile phone access and um, use of mobile platforms for uh, money transfers it was a, just a huge, a huge value add on the, on the feed, feed the Future side that I think um, can, can make a huge difference. Those would be some of the, the working with financial, uh, de-risking financial and, and promoting input suppliers to get uh, closer to these folks. Thanks. So, so helping to deepen the, the work on, on markets, right? Markets and financial systems. So you all, humanitarian organizations, can get that work started and start to familiarize people. The markets and through your program sort of prime the pump. But there's a certain point where, where you need more assistance and Feed the Future might be able to help with that. So I think that that's a perfect segue uh, to opening the conversation with, with Phil. Uh, because, you know, as we know, I think one of the, the most successful points of Feed the Future has been Feed the Future's ability to engage the private sector in agricultural market development, bringing smallholders in, commercial markets, helping to, to reduce risk uh, and incentivize greater, greater engagement, both local and international engagement. So, so markets, and, and you yourself, have had, had wide experience in, in West Africa. Up to now, you know, from my perspective, Feed the Future has been very successful in this market space in fairly stable areas, right? Which doesn't make it any less significant and important, very important. But now we're asking the question of, can private sector play a role, you know, in doing what, what, what Dina would like? Yeah, I mean, how can we deepen their sustained engagement in these. As we're seeing, I think you're right, very importantly, cash-based assistance, helping to prime the pump, getting people used to looking at the market rather than, than handouts. So from the market's experience, perhaps most relevant in the, the, the Delta area, you know, which has been subjected to conflict, and from other areas where, where you and Comonics have worked, what, what do you think are the, the key lessons that are emerging and you know, what should we be thinking about as Feed the Future stands at this pivot point, needing to do more on, on resilience? Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Julie. It's, a, it's a challenge that we think about a lot at Commonics. And, and just con word of context about markets. Uh, so markets was the second phase of USA programming, which essentially became Feed the Future type activities, more the uh, uh, stable zones, as Julie said, 26 states in the second phase uh, and $65 million. So it was around the country in a lot of places, including the Delta, not including the Northeast. So it's a, it's a good question to say, how would you deal with the North, Northeast and what had we learned from a place like the Delta? And I think, you know, I, as, I, as we prepared for this, uh, talked to a number of colleagues that had worked with us directly in the, um, the Delta region earlier and looked at um, what we had done. We also had just finished a sort of a, mixed methods uh, study of baseline and endline, uh, looking at resilience of the, ex of the markets, uh, ex-post study of the markets program. So in looking at all of that, I think one of our takeaways is that, you know, when you look at the Delta region, of course, the, um, uh, the, the uh, security situation was just fundamentally uh, different itself. The nature of entitlement, the nature of sort of payoffs was very different from the Northeast uh, in security situation. But what we had in the, in the uh, Niger River Delta region was the presence, and I have to say explicitly, of NDPI pin, that presence of private-public partnership establishing uh, a means for conflict mediation uh, was critical. It was critical <coughs> to our ability to proceed there. 
Uh, in talking to the team, it was critical to implement changes that would make uh, impact at a market systems level, not just individual producers, uh, because there was a certain amount of stability it provided and, and uh, ability to negotiate at a governance level. Uh, and and there, that played out in different ways. Uh, it's worth noting that we also just completed a civic engagement program financed by USAID in Nigeria, and they also worked in the Niger Delta region. We saw that a group like uh, NDPI PIN was critical to working with public and private, and this in the case of Ondo State, uh, public and private partners to the extent of getting uh, financial lines put into the government budgets for agricultural finance. And this is exactly what Professor Soji was talking about. That ability to do that is critical to private sector growth and investment. And we saw that in that case, it was uh, fish farming uh, in Ondo State. But, so we've seen this in multiple areas. So that's the sort of upside of where you can go. Now how that works in a conflict zone like the Northeast is a special challenge. We don't have, to my knowledge, that level of uh, partnership and uh, we have the government under the PNCI setting up sort of a means for stability, but the private level involvement is not as extensive there. And of course, uh, you know, from what we've seen across Nigeria, security is, can't be set enough for private investment. The dynamism we saw in markets was all over the country, they will go where there is stability and where there is security. So how do you, how do you convince the more significant players to move into a conflict zone? It's a real challenge. I would say though that it's important to keep in mind not just the larger level, larger size private sector investors, but also the smaller enterprises. Uh, we, I, I think that we, we talk about uh, IDPs in the Northeast and elsewhere in the world that we've seen that move and settle, and they don't move right on. There are economic opportunities, as, as Dina mentioned. I think we're seeing more investment in, in that kind of opportunity, and I think there continues to be more, as, as Dina mentioned. And I think we, you know, we see it in, um, and I think your report was very thought-provoking in saying, are the fixed value chains under the current Feed the Future program in Nigeria the right ones to select, given that the sort of captive or peri-urban population that's in the Northeast conflict zones may be more fitting for other, other opportunities. I think we've seen already investment in um, drip irrigation that's appropriate recently as a company called Boplast in, in uh, Borno State that started uh, the government public-private partnership to start manufacturing tubing for that sort of work. Uh, so, and that can be looked at not because it's a nutrition supporting delivery mechanism for micronutrients, but because there are serious economic opportunities and business opportunities in those, in those business lines. So, you know, we, we think that that is important and, uh, uh, but there are, there are challenges, you know, we've, we've seen a lot around the country with DEC micro, microfinance work in Bauchi State or Lapo down in the south. A lot of microfinance work, how can risk reduction happen in the conflict zones? Is it only microfinance or can we begin to get more established banks involved in delivering uh, risk, uh, risk instruments, whether insurance or banking? I think there are possibilities. I know from Kamonic's side, we've seen elsewhere in the world that some combination of bricks and mortar solutions with IT solutions, with outreach agent solutions, and working directly with banks to find those solutions in a way that address their risk concerns are viable means of getting out even into conflict-affected uh, zones. So there are opportunities there as well. Thanks. Soji, I wanted to turn to you um, just briefly. So I saw you nodding your head vigorously, yes. you know, with Phil. And I, and I know as, as you were sitting in, in Abuja and going to the Northeast for those five years, 
and Emmy and I and, our, and Kimberly in our research, you know, we're sort of amazed that the amount of, of private sector activity that has continued, you know, despite the threats of, of bombings or despite the storehouses. So, so what do you find from the Nigerian private sector side? What might be the most effective means to, to reduce the risk and incentivize investment in those areas? I'm sorry. I don't think we should ignore the larger scale businesses who have strong interests. Now I'll get back to the, to the micro enterprises in a second. Um, I remember back in 2013, um, the, we floated this idea of a victim support dinner event, and uh, all the billionaires and millionaires in Nigeria were invited, and people thought eh, it would never work, nobody's going to donate anything, Nigerians don't give. Well, that event raised over $200 million, I think it was actually close to $300 million donated by some, some key people. I think across Nigeria, there are people who are wealthy and the businesses, the banks, the insurance companies, the major auto dealerships, they have a vested interest in the Northeast Telecoms companies whose uh, revenues have been compromised by uh, the total shutout of, uh, of the Northeast. I think uh, the government needs to talk to them. They have ideas and they can probably help open some of the doors into the Northeast. They have a vested interest in the Northeast, for example, the second largest cement manufacturer in Nigeria, um, Lafarge, uh, is based there. Their entire survival in Nigeria is based on that place. So that's one side. In terms of smaller uh, businesses, um, you're right that not all businesses were, were destroyed. And in many cases, businesses simply migrated. Um, the people who end up in IDP camps were people who didn't have the capacity or the resourcefulness to reposition their businesses and go elsewhere. I think I mentioned last night, if you go to the city of Gombe, Gombe's population is more than double now. The surrounding areas of Gombe um, are now occupied by people who escaped from Maiduguri, not Maiduguri, but Bono State and Adamawa State and so on and so forth. And they've gone there and started businesses. I mean, they literally in months reestablished new businesses. They just relocated their businesses. And in talking to some of them, they're ready to move back if the security condition was right. They would need incentives, obviously. There's no structured financing targeted at returning businesses, and you can't get the communities back on track unless you get the business communities that will employ them back on track. So we need to think seriously about that. I have a hypothesis that Nigerian banks would actually be more interested in, in financing uh, the revitalization of uh, Northeast businesses than they would in their day-to-day -day operations uh, as part of their corporate uh, social responsibility uh, uh, interests. So that, that should be done. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to rebuild back the Northeast. Um, we did significant damage assessment and literally the rebuilding is a 12, 13 billion dollar enterprise. We need to think about it that way. How do we engage small entrepreneurs, young people from the Northeast, how do we present the Northeast as an opportunity to go back and restart and jumpstart your business uh, for many people that are hiding out in Abuja now and competing with others? I think that's a very important one. Schools have to be rebuilt. Water systems need to be reconfigured. Fertilizer delivery mechanisms need to be re-established. Re, re so uh, with a little bit of thinking and some strategic work, 
I think you can incentivize some of those businesses to go back and therefore create opportunities for, for locals who also want to go back home, yes. Great, thank you. So, so I think we, we see, I, I hear in, in, in your, um, your words sort of opportunity not only for business but opportunity perhaps for public works Absolutely. projects. And interesting also, you know, what you've said about people are not sort of fleeing and, and sitting on their hands, they're establishing their businesses elsewhere. Uh, and with the, the transformation of the agriculture sector and increasing demand for fruits and vegetables and, uh, and meats, new business opportunities are, are coming up for, for youth and, and young women and, and others. Okay, great. So, Greg, I want to turn to you now uh, with a, a dense set of questions. Um, yes, so you have led USAID's Center for Resilience within the Bureau for Food Security since its launch. Uh, the Feed the Future strategy refresh added resilience, of course, as a strategic objective, and we're the restructuring of the Bureau for Food Security into the Bureau for now Resilience and Food Security seems to further and very significantly elevate this priority. So we'll appreciate your update on, on that reorganization and, and what it looks like from your vantage point. So I, I, the first set of the dense questions, what was the rationale for these changes in your view, especially given the very successful track record of Feed the Future? Why change? You know, it's working so well. Uh, it's strong support in Congress. Why risk that? Uh, no pun intended. Um, and practically speaking, how will the reorganization and the addition of the strategic objective affect Feed the Future? What do you think about that? What are the key changes you are expecting to see or already seeing at the country level and in Washington? And then the second round of dense questions, okay. Our report is fairly critical mm -hmm. of what we saw in, in Nigeria. So we're suggesting that the tilt to resilience there is not fully evident. Uh, we view the new country strategy <clears throat> as largely focused on extending the traditional activities that Feed the Future was undertaking when Nigeria was aligned with Feed the Future but not a target country. So resilience activities are concentrated in the four states of the Northeast, but our analysis of you know, where are the sources of risk and the opportunities suggests that that opportunity to, to dig in deeper on resilience, it's much greater than just the Northeast. So if you could comment on those, those sets of questions. Dense indeed. <laughs> Thank you, Julie. Um, first, maybe just to respond to the start of your second batch of questions. Um, I think, uh, thank you, Emmy and Julie, for pushing us. We need to be pushed. I do think that uh, the situation in northeastern Nigeria, although it has its unique uh, contextual sort of uh, special considerations, is actually part of a broader phenomena, as we're seeing throughout the Sahel, Niger, Burkina Faso, Mali. Certainly, Julie and I both have a connection to Somalia. We're grappling with some, with some of the same issues. And you ask, why would Feed the Future pivot when we've had such great success? And, and as an initiative, we have. We've met our target of reducing stunting by 20% in target countries. We've exceeded our target of reducing poverty by 20% in target countries. But as early as 2011, 2012, we began to question the sort of basic premise of where we were focusing Feed the Future. And there's some people in the audience. I see Franklin here, and there's others as well. Uh, certainly Dina, that were part of that early questioning and starting to say exactly as you open the conversation, 
If we have Feed the Future, how can there be an unprecedented famine happening in Somalia? And in fact, how can there be uh, a situation in which uh, the U.S. government, through our humanitarian wing, is going back to the same places every three to five years with a major humanitarian outlay? And if you go back in time to a place like Ethiopia and you look at the cost, the simple dollar cost of going back to the same places every three to five years, it's $5 billion over the last 15 years in Ethiopia. Significant large outlays elsewhere in Niger, Burkina Faso, northern Kenya, et cetera. So we needed a rethink even as early as 2011-12. And the rethink was let us stop thinking about these areas, these peoples, these places as a perennial humanitarian risk and start thinking about them developmentally as a development challenge. And it's exactly the way Soji is talking about the Northeast, opportunity. Government, there is a crisis. Dina was just there. It's very hard to think about long-term investment when you see people fleeing into Cameroon, et cetera. But we need to be thinking developmentally about these issues. Why this pivot for Feed the Future? You already mentioned it. Hunger, global hunger, has reversed course for the first time in 15 years. Unprecedented humanitarian needs in 2017, 2018. Not only a huge humanitarian bill, we're talking about massive loss of life livelihoods, aspiration, massive hits to national and regional economies. So even in addition to a myopic focus on the cost to the U.S. taxpayer and the U.S. government in terms of humanitarian outlay, the exorbitant cost of dealing with these crises as though they're anomalies, when in fact we know these aren't anomalies, they're perennial features of these, of these landscapes, a place like northeastern Nigeria, we know the counterfactual of not investing. And we know that if we don't begin to think developmentally about northeastern Nigeria now, we'll be having the same conversation 10 years from now, and Dino will have just gotten back, perhaps with a new organization, from having, <laughs> from having uh, visited a humanitarian operation. And so we need to be thinking developmentally. Now, it's, it's not just that hunger's reversing course, an unprecedented humanitarian need. And you're right to call out there's a, a need to think about resilience even more broadly than that. We've made tremendous progress globally in reducing poverty. Certainly, Feed the Future in our target countries has reduced the prevalence of poverty. We've hit our targets. At the same time, there's an alarming dynamic at which people are escaping poverty only to fall back into poverty within a few years because they're ex being exposed to a range of shocks and stresses. It's climate, it's uh, environmental degradation, it's population growth, it's price shocks, it's conflict and, and volatility increasingly. And so when we look at the rates of poverty backsliding in a place like Ethiopia nationally, we're talking about between 1999 and 2009, 63% of the people who escaped poverty fell back into poverty. In Kenya, it's about 44% over a similar period. So there's a much bigger phenomena beyond the northeastern Nigerias, beyond the northern Kenyas, of having to look at the risks people face, having to think about them comprehensively, so not just climate risk or health risk, but the full range of shocks and stresses that households and communities face. And I think um, uh, the focus on the Northeast sort of is reminiscent of our focus on northern Kenya, the highlands and lowlands of Ethiopia, Karamoja and Uganda, certainly Somalia, and really focusing on areas of recurrent crisis where we see this repeat large-scale humanitarian spending. But you're absolutely right, and this report is absolutely right. We need to think more broadly than that. I do think 
there's an important pivot happening here at USAID, and you mentioned the proposed uh, Bureau for Resilience and Food Security as part of that pivot, the earlier elevation of resilience as a strategic objective in Feed the Future. So we'd been working informally a little bit in 2011, 2012. We gained speed as an organization. We have some of the founders of the, the agency's Resilience Leadership Council in the room here. That has allowed us to think beyond sectors and across sectors. So when we look at a place like Northern Kenya or Ethiopia, we have these models where it's not just Feed the Future as an initiative, but Feed the Future combined with money from global health and conflict and governance, all combining water and sanitation, a big piece of that, all combining in a diverse comprehensive portfolio that reflects the challenge of building resilience. We know that sources of resilience not only cut across sectors, but transcend sectors. So it's not just access to financial services, access to markets, it's social capital, it's women's empowerment, it's aspiration. And in fact, all the sources of resilience that Dina uh, listed on her, from her recent trip to northeastern uh, Nigeria are the same sources of resilience we see in the face of large-scale shock events in Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya, etc. So we need to be thinking, yes, Feed the Future is a vanguard development initiative, pushing the agency uh, to deal with areas of recurrent and protracted crisis, but never Feed the Future alone. Feed the Future has to be part of a comprehensive approach that spans sectors, uh, certainly within our, our agency, that's, that spans the humanitarian development sphere, but also even more importantly than that, and I often talk about Kenya as our sort of prime example of this, this is not about the U.S. government solving the problems of northeastern Nigeria. This is about the U.S. government modeling and providing uh, examples and innovations and de-risking private sector to demonstrate to our partners, like the government of Nigeria, what's possible in these areas of recurrent crisis in terms of the vision that Soji outlined. And that is our role of donors. Our administrator, I almost call them our new administrator, but I think new no longer applies, has a vision for the journey to self-reliance. And this isn't a naive, naive vision of us getting there in five years in a place like northeastern Nigeria, but it is absolutely a call to lean into the northeastern Nigerias of the world and say, we need to be thinking about a journey to self-reliance in these contexts too, and part of that is a fundamental focus on building this set of capacities we call resilience. Thanks, thanks, Grace, that's, that's, really, that's really good. So um, for your sins, I have a follow-up question. So this bumps up into another interest of mine, and that is, you know, how do we scale agricultural innovations? In those conversations, as I was, I was telling some, some friends last night, I, I'm, I'm having nightmares now where these two, these two areas, Nigeria and resilience and scaling, are coming together, and they're coming together around the challenge of, of, of management and programming incentives. Because when, we were, when I was at USAID and we were enmeshed in, in scaling discussions, mm -hmm. we found you know, scaling where it happened was almost by accident, uh, was being undertaken by, I would say, some rogue uh, implementing partners you know, who, who saw that if they followed the rules exactly, they would never get to where they needed to get. Right? So, so they went out on their own and they made new partnerships. Something similar occurs to me to be a challenge now with this resilience agenda. You know, I very, this resonates very much what you're saying. It needs to be cross-sectoral. But the partners that I've talked to all along the way feel like their incentives are very much, 
you know, plant a flag, right? Plant a flag, work in your area, work with your partner, show what you did. Mm -hmm. And that just seems fundamentally opposed. So I want to ask you, you know, what changes you think might need to happen at Feed the Future to incentivize, to reward the sort of cross-sectoral partnerships. And then I want to turn to, to our implementing partner representatives to say, well, what's, what would make that easy or hard from your perspectives? The, the question of incentives is a good one, and I don't think we've fully figured that out. But what we do have is models. We now have models uh, not only in the Horn of Africa. We've got a nascent model in Malawi, uh, which incidentally helped the government sort of see the value of its own national resilience strategy that's not narrowly focused uh, as a Ministry of Agriculture initiative, but a broad cross-ministerial initiative. So we've got models uh, both within USAID, in the Horn, in the Sahel, even in Niger and Burkina Faso. There, there's probably some people in the audience or, or, or listening in that are part of our Resilience in the Sahel Enhanced or RISE initiative in Niger and Burkina Faso that is this multi-sector cross-humanitarian development platform that we're building on. A really interesting case there where we built it around uh, large-scale droughts as exposing moments, exacerbated by a whole range of shocks and stresses, but now we're having to adapt that platform to the spillover of extremist threats from, from Mali. So there's even an adaptation of the, res the resilience uh, portfolio. But what we have in these models, and I've been intimately involved in many of them, is an initial couple of years of really going against the grain, trying to get partners not just to share information, not just to uh, begin to uh, know what each other are doing, but to think deeply about areas of collaboration. We had this phrase, sequence, layer, and integrate, that was initially uh, interpreted as thou shall collaborate on everything amongst everyone everywhere, which is not the message we want to send. The message is we need to think deeply about opportunities where partners who traditionally uh, not only didn't uh, partner together but didn't talk with one another can work together. And we've seen a tremendous uh, set of examples emerge from the countries in which we are doing this. Uh, an example I like to point to is happening both in Niger and Kenya and, and a little bit in Malawi now is the World Food Program, supported through our Office of Food for Peace, uh, doing large-scale asset creation activities, which, if conceived in isolation, would get us nowhere near the type of resilience we need to withstand shock events. But when we begin to target those same communities with the types of market interventions that Phil uh, was talking about, with the type of new innovations and in technologies, Julie, that you pointed to, and then we begin to think about now, wait a minute, given this shock, uh, this, this risk environment, the shocks and stresses people face here, not everybody's going to farm their way out of this dilemma. So we start to think beyond ag production and start to think about what are the pathways for people who, not just those who can step up within agriculture and become commercial private, but those who need to step a foot out of agriculture, a move entirely out. In northeastern Nigeria, uh, it's, as it's been uh, Soji alluded to, there's not only been a displacement, there's been multiple displacements. And people have settled in these LGA capitals, uh, particularly youth. And uh, as we were discussing last night, many will never go back. And so our interventions, in addition to looking at opportunities on farm, have to begin thinking about what about that young person in an LGA capital? How are we looking at their pathway? How are we meeting youth where they are, both physically and where they are aspirationally? And so we need to do that. We need a diverse set of partners. And we, we at USAID have a role to play as a, 
a sort of quasi backbone organization in motivating. But this is a change for USAID as well. This is not simply a USAID project manager managing their chemonics project. This is a group of USAID managers coming together and managing the relationships across a portfolio of partners. And so we've got models in different countries. The huge leap here is we've developed that model where conflict is an exacerbating factor. Northern Kenya, uh, Ethiopia, Karamoja. Leaning into these areas where conflict of the nature of what's happening in northern, northeastern Nigeria is not an exacerbating factor, but a driver is a huge leap. And it means expanding our partner base, both who we're partnering with in USAID, Feed the Future in OTI, for example, having deep programmatic layering conversations in places like Niger, uh, Eastern DRC, but how we get these partners who are not accustomed to working together. Uh, and it's not just an incentive issue, there's a cultural issue. Uh, when you get, you know, I remember when our, um, it wasn't Chemotics, it was a competitor, but uh, uh, getting them to partner with the World Food Program, there was very entrenched perspectives the markets people thought of WFP as a truck and dump organization, and WFP thought of the, uh, uh, of the um, uh, implementer and markets as a bunch of consultants who sit around talking to each other. And so breaking down and sort of seeing the value in each other as partners has been a huge lift. Thanks a lot for that. And I, yeah, I, I think one of the striking things when we were in Nigeria and talking to people we would hear, yes, you know, development humanitarian organizations definitely need to sit together. Everybody wants to sit together. But the meetings never happen. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody was waiting for some entity to convene them, and it wasn't happening. So it, it, there's a lot of work to do. So, so I want to turn to, to you, Phil, and then to, to Dina. I mean, to, to reflect a bit on, on, on what Greg has laid out. So it's the vision but also a vision that's been realized in part in Ethiopia or in, in, in northern Kenya in terms of incentivizing and breaking down the cultural barriers that, that mitigate against cross-sector collaboration. In, in my conversations with the implementing partners, you know, I, I hear, you know, yes, we want to do this. Yes, this is the right thing. You know, unfortunately, our hands are tied. You know, here's our, here's our grant agreement. Here's our contract agreement. Here's what we must deliver. So our, 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 our maneuverability, you know, is fairly limited. But, but let's, let's hear from you, Phil. I mean, so what would it take, you know, from Commonics or, you know, implementing partner perspective, you know, to have that freedom, you know, to not just manage or be about a Commonics part, uh, project, but to manage more broadly, you know, as part of a group? What would, what's really required in a nuts and bolts sense? Easy question. Uh, well, it is a great question, and, and as a having been a chief of party for 10 years in different couple different places, where I was asked to please coordinate with the others working in that region or in that sector, we face the issues of uh, work plans that don't align, targets and outcomes that don't align, uh, inflexibility in reporting timetables and monitoring expectations, et cetera. I think. So in the meantime, since those have happened, um, I know USAID as a partner has come a long way, especially now as we get into this uh, revised OAA strategy that better enables some of the partnering and flexibility, co-financing, co-creation, complementation that the OAA is putting out. This is a huge step forward that allows and encourages not just the awarding of a contract with outcomes, but then interaction and adaptive management as the contract or grant proceeds. That's a huge step forward. Now, exactly how, I know we're, 
we're hearing soon more of the detail of how it will play out, but we've seen mechanisms that are very important, for example, that the Development Lab has put out allowing uh, a broader number of partners on more rapid turnaround investment opportunities. These are very significant developments that will allow that sort of flexibility that Greg is saying needs to, needs to, uh, to happen. And, you know, and I think this uh, incentivizing process is particularly important. We've seen it, you know, the Gates Foundation has done a number of sort of incentive driving grants to develop technology. Others have done the same, the same thing. That ability to, and I think of governance in the um, governance interactions with other sectors in the Northeast and Nigeria context where we have to allow for innovation in the region. We can't lock down on one partner, one, one immediate partner, but how do we incentivize some of the changes that have happened in areas immediately adjacent to, to Borno State and Bauchi State, where creative, you know, a new government is coming in with a new governor with this election in Gombe, where creative solutions have been found on education. How do we create a framework to allow those, those innovations to be adapted or shared with regions we're targeting? And I think we're heading that way. I think some of the new, speaking of Nigeria and USAID's recent work in Nigeria, I, I think as they develop their program, there might be limitations on the feed the future outcomes expected, but I think we're seeing greater flexibility on the way implementation can, can take place, which will allow better partnering. Um, but I think it does come down as a contractor who is asked to do some outcome for the U.S. government in this case. We need flexibility on adapting the core instruments we work with, whether it's work plans or outcome, outcomes defined as we move along. If that can happen, we can adapt as effectively as we need to. Dina? Thanks. Phil has said it, has said it really well. I think um, one of the main things that USAID can do is really elevate the coordination expectation. I don't think it can happen at the Feed the Future level. It has to be well above a specific sector because fundamentally the humanitarians and the, the Aggies and the health people and the water people, they don't report to the Feed the Future person. And so this is an AID leadership question. It's not a Feed the Future question per se, but absolutely vital if this agenda is going to move forward in Nigeria. So I would say elevate uh, coordination. Uh, I've seen it actually written into grants. You will sit down with other aid partners. You will share work plans. You will do that sort of thing. But that's really not enough. I think as Phil said, the this idea of um, really pointing uh, partners in the direction of outcomes and letting the activities adjust as the situation and the dynamics on the ground change and as we learn. I mean, I uh, was in Ethiopia not long ago uh, talking to uh, uh, some of the Mercy Corps staff saying, adaptive management, I just spent six months negotiating this budget down to the last pen and pencil. And now you want me to change it? It's like, I couldn't possibly do that. So there's a huge psychological leap and there's, a, there's an awful lot to unpack when we talk about adaptive management. You're really, it's going to challenge the procurement process and this ex, expectation around accountability that I think there's just so much, so much more work to be done. Um, I think that AID also uh, needs to elevate this issue of uh, peace building and conflict analytics. So Feed the Future is fantastic on market analysis and on uh, uh, so much of the, the value chain work, which uh, the humanitarians don't do uh, as much of. And the, but those market analytics need to be 
adapted, adjusted, and uh, reflect the uh, peace build, the peace issues, and the conflict issues that are going on simultaneously. So, I would really call on way more um, focus and attention, and maybe it's another report. What does the peace programming look like that that marries with feed the future, feed the future programming, and, and what are the conflict analytics, and that the value chains then need to be adapted. So, instead of heavy infrastructure uh, type of long-term return on investment, really rapid. Uh, looking at what uh, smallholder farmers and others can get quickly in terms of income without a lot of investment if they need to pick up and move. So soft skills, portable um, assets are, are things that I think um, need to be, to be thought a little bit more about. And then finally, on in, um, this role of engaging the government. So all of us are, are interfacing with the Nigerian government and the extent to which the U.S. government and other donors can get themselves together and have a shared vision and, and interface with the government about what it looks like to do this kind of work in a highly volatile place, right? We're not talking about the old linear relief, uh, recovery, development, and now we're over here and we're gonna build beautiful um, buildings and do uh, traditional reconstruction work. We're going to be um, doing something that, that looks uh, much more uh, light, lighter touch, high, uh, like you're talking about public works, other kinds of interventions that are not just the showcase reconstruction project, which I, I did see um, some of as well and heard about uh, when I was there. So I think those are some of the areas that uh, USAID could work on that would really help um, both the resilience agenda as well as the partners who are working in that space. Thank, thank you, Dina. So, so I want to go back to you, Soji, and sort of close off our, our conversation on stage here. And after your response, I'd like to open it up for questions and answers from, from all of you. Soji, I think, you know, we've said throughout the morning that U.S. government assistance, Feed the Future, we're not going to solve Nigeria's issues. Only Nigeria can do that. So Nigeria, I was so struck when we visited there together, I mean, just such immense potential. You know, the, the companies that we met with uh, in, in Lagos who were eager uh, to, to get their agricultural production, get it their, stock their supermarket shelves with Nigerian products rather than imported products. You meeting with the youth, you know, the meetings that we had, you just, the, the place just pulses with an energy that's almost unlike any other country I've visited. So how do we pull all this together? You know, again, you know, such, you know, I think I told you during our first visit, I'd never been to a country where people regularly talked about agriculture in an excited tone, yeah? But you saw that, you know, it's partly because of the dependence on oil and needing to sort of really get your arms around reinvigorating the agricultural economy. How to do that, how to bring youth in you could reflect a little bit on that and some of the comments that we heard today and tell us, if you can, how, how can be the future and the U.S. government assist Nigeria? What are the most important things we could do? I take the liberty of being the last speaker to kind of talk about three things rather than the one question you've asked me. Um, um, there's a lot of discourse about climate change and its impact on, um, uh, on food security, and a lot of talk about conflict on food security. I think one point I'd, I'd like to note is that the climate issues 
cannot be eliminated, cannot, they can only be mitigated. So food security related strategies uh, perhaps give us an opportunity to actually be able to intervene and, and do something and help people learn how to feed themselves. And, <coughs> and, um, and I think people really, um, hunger is something that there's not a single hungry person that I know that doesn't want to get out of this situation. Um, and there's an opportunity for us to think differently about help, leveraging the fact that people do want solutions and, um, 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 and helping them to discover those, uh, those, those solutions. Um, Nigeria is a country of opportunity, uh, probably the most optimistic set of people in the world. It's also got a lot of talents. I mean, if you interact with the business community, you realize some of the smartest people in the world are from Nigeria. Um, I think what is, what is the challenge, the perpetual challenge in Nigeria is actually leadership and governance. Uh, I think if the leaders can get it right, I think the rest of the system will probably follow. And, and leaders that don't get it right, it's not because they don't want to get it right. I think it's because the knowledge base for getting it right is just not there. Um, Nigeria has gone through a lot from military rule and um, colonization, things of that nature. Uh, the whole alignment of leaders with interests of the people, the whole service, uh, leadership, leader, not, Nigeria follows a leader follower uh, approach rather than the service leadership kind of an approach. So I think one of the best things we can do or the United States or for the future can do is um, help provide evidence of what works. In my interaction with leaders, people are dying to provide positive leadership, but they just don't have the insights on what works. Um, in all the countries that for the future has worked, maybe USAID might kind of commission something that addresses the issue of um, what lessons have we learned from Nigeria, you know, from all these advancements that we've made? I mean, really evidence-based, something that leaders can look at and say, oh, so we're not in a box, so this can work, and then let them try it. Secondly, I think that when people are convinced that something could work, it is very important to provide them with policy development or policy support type of facilities. DFID, I know, is pretty advanced in this. I couldn't do any of the work I did in Nigeria to develop the long-term plan for the Northeast if I, if I didn't have a DFID to go to and say, support me, mm. uh, give me technical support. And, uh, and they paid for my staff, by the way, you know. And we developed a short-term humanitarian program, an immediate-term redevelopment resettlement program, and a long-term economic development strategy, which has now blossomed into the Buhari Plan, PCNI, and the rest of those things. So I think this policy development uh, capacity building is very, very important, um, uh, particularly in the case of, uh, of Nigeria. Um, um, I, we need to reinvent think tanks. Um, at the time of Nigeria's independence, it was a very thoughtful country, uh, notwithstanding the challenges and so on and so forth. The think tanks have totally disappeared in the country. And so building the capacity of domestic think tanks is extremely important. And at this point, I don't ever think that Nigerians discriminate between domestic or international think tanks. Just getting think tank capacity, like the kind of report that you've written. I'd like 
to be part of an opportunity to go deliver this to the next generation of leaders, whether it's the current one continuing and saying, you see, this is important, you know, but these are the roles you can play uh, to support uh, uh, an improved U.S. presence. Um, and then I also want to um, get back to this issue of changes that might be needed at the agency level. The problems of Nigeria don't come in, in packages of uh, resilience and food security versus, you know, some other uh, sub-agency. They're real problems. I mean, some of the work I did in the Northeast, we couldn't separate the humanitarian uh, program design from the long-term economic development. And I think that one of the things that does need to happen is at the agency level is getting together some of the leaders to conceptualize it in, in, in a, a process of incentivizing new programs that can really kind of leverage all the capabilities, all the lessons learned, all the opportunities, all the expertise. Um, and maybe a model like that would help in, in Nigeria. And then finally, uh, youth. <laughs> um, I want to comment about youth since you mentioned it. Um, youth are seen now in Nigeria as a demographic. And near election time, they're seen as relevant only for the purpose of voting. Hmm. Um, the implications of youth unemployment for the long-term stability of the country is not really a big issue. Most thought leaders are not thinking about it, you know. Um, and the opportunity to actually grow Nigeria by fully engaging the youth um, is not, I, my assessment is that it's not at the very top of people's uh, thinking. But I think all of that could be, could be changed. Um, a lot of work is needed, research, insights. I think people need to understand the, the value of youth. I did a presentation once in which I just showed, a, as an economist, showed a production function and showed what it implies when some of your inputs are not. And I, I mean, you introduce new inputs and your production function rises. So if you're talking about growing the economy, creating jobs, you need to see jobs as kids as job providers, not as job takers. Mm -hmm. And uh, innovation among youth needs to be encouraged. Uh, Nigeria's intellectual property rules and laws. Um, um, I think we need to think about youth innovation, youth entrepreneurship, and how to protect that. I think uh, investment in uh, intellectually property development. Innovation in agriculture, very classic, traditional, um, old-term development, but entrepreneurship in agriculture, young people. I mean, their innovations, incentivizing their innovations, creating opportunities for them to address some of the issues, creating funds and resources that will encourage them at the state level. You can't do such a thing at the, at the federal level. Leading the governors to understand the importance of creating these seeds of innovation and rewarding young innovators. Uh, I think these are examples of the kinds of things that need to be done. And we need to do this in the context of recognizing that uh, we're in a new global economy. Opportunities to make money and to be successful and resilient are very different from what our grandfathers did, which was mostly tilling the soil, you know. Um, I see young people doing phenomenal stuff and they need to be incentivized. So how fit the future, particularly related to the food sector, uh, can gain better understanding of some of those things and look at ways to incentivize them using combination of domestic um, 
and international ideas, I think, would be helpful. But those are just my thoughts. Thanks. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Soji. Okay, well, thank you, audience, for your, your patience. We're not quite going to have uh, half an hour, but we'll have a few minutes anyway. So I'd like to invite your questions at this time. We've got some, oh my goodness, um, have got some microphones. So I think let's take like four questions at a time, and I'm hoping we'll have time for two rounds. Let, let's start over here. Okay, there are two questions here, and then there's questions, two questions in the middle there. Okay. So Hi, if you can say who you are. Great. My name is Katie Smith. I'm with Search for Common Ground. Um, we're an international peacebuilding organization. We have five offices in Nigeria. Um, we also coordinate the forum on farmer and herder relations in Nigeria, which is a forum of ac Nigerian academics, practitioners, and p uh, policymakers with peacebuilding mandates to look at the issue of the farmer herder conflict. Um, recently, about a few weeks ago, they had their annual strategy session about what issues they thought were the most pressing within that conflict to, to look at. And the, what they decided on was this issue of land, water, and livelihoods and how they're affecting the conflict. Um, you know, climate change is obviously a part of this population growth as well as, um, you know, the growing demand for cattle and um, the, the, the rising price of, of cows. Um, and so, you know, what we're seeing is that, especially. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'm going to push question. you for yes, questions because we don't have very much yes. time. Yes, and so basically, because of this focus of how it interacts with conflict, um, you know, is is directly linked with uh, the access to to farms and to raise their cattle. And so, in this next phase of feed the future, that's focusing on. Um, resilience, how will that incorporate conflict prevention, social cohesion, and peace building into the programming for these conflict areas that have these livelihoods components? Okay, Bob? Hi, Julie. Uh, great panel. Uh, Bob Robatsky, I'm with FinTrack, a uh, local consultancy here that uh, implements a number of Feed the Future programs. Um, Want to uh, to accomplish these goals, we, we all know that uh, a significant portion of the investment has to come from the private sector. Um, USAID and other donors play a very important role in, uh, in convening and catalyzing that investment, but it, it really has to come from the private sector. Last week I was meeting with some investors and uh, we, we did happen upon the topic of Nigeria and the great potential and the, and the rapid growth and the huge ag potential, but they said, look, we're not putting our money into Nigeria. It's just, it, it's a bad place to do business. It's blacklisted, it's dangerous, um, there's no security. Um, in peeking at the doing business ranking of Nigeria, it's something around 146 out of 190 countries worldwide. That's, that's way down near the bottom for a country of its magnitude. Um, knowing that this investment has to come, um, what, what uh, is the government of Nigeria doing about it? Does the government of Nigeria see this as a pressing problem? And do they have the willingness to really change this and make it a, a more uh, a welcoming environment? And, and uh, Greg, for you, um, how does this fit into the resilience, the overall resilience strategy in going into a country, um, positioning the country to be more acceptable to private investment. Great, thank you. Okay, so speaking of adaptive management, I think we're gonna take a, f let's try and take all the questions, on all the questions, so about six, and then back to the panel. I think that's probably what we'll have time for. So there's two right there, right, okay. 
Please be brief so we yeah. can get more questions in. Mine is very short. Emilio Bunge from Development Finance International. What opportunities like the, the new uh, USDFI combining OPIC and some of the risking capabilities of USAID offer in this context or other conflict affected areas? Thank you. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Mira Saukar. I'm from a company called Geopol. We're a market research firm. Um, my question was, what are the challenges that you encounter when collecting data, when trying to get insights and information from, from Nigeria? Couple from over here, okay. <laughs> you and then behind you. Hi, uh, my name is Anandi. I'm coming from IBTCI. We're in a monitoring and evaluation firm. So taking the monitoring and evaluation perspective, what role do you see monitoring and evaluation services with the Feed the Future phase two um, transition, and um, do you see any changes in providing that services for this kind of phase? Thank you. Hello, Nathan Hustler, Church of the Brethren in the US. Uh, in Nigeria, there's a Church of the Brethren in Northeast, primarily Northern Adamawa, Southern Borno. So my question relates to that. How do we flex our programs to match the contours of local societies and communities, such as religious bodies that are resilient um, they, you know, they exist for a long time, they stay there, they'll go back, but lack the monitoring evaluation, for example, um, type mechanisms to, to receive these sorts of uh, support and uh, programs. Last question here. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Jonathan Hyman uh, with uh, Old Lino of Grid Cold Chain uh, Solutions. Um, just to uh, build on the gentleman over there, um, how does the private sector engage? Um, do we work with national governments, state governments, NGOs, USA, USAID and other DFI and other Western programs? What's the best way for the private, for the private sector to get engaged, especially in the field of resilience, off-grid um, opportunities? Thank you. Okay. Thanks for the range of interesting questions. So I think what the in the interest of time, we just go down the, the panel. And so any that you would like to comment on? Greg? That was like a, a one Julie Howard question. <laughs> Seven. Um, but I'll, I'll take a couple of them. The, um, the first one on private sector, I mean, I think there are private sectors. We're talking about um, you know, the enabling business environment for foreign investment, but there's a huge, and Soji touched on this, huge local private sector that is willing to invest in these areas. Those are the investments we can initially de-risk in places like northeastern Kenya. And when we look at our resilience programs where we're working in areas of recurrent crisis, that's where we've seen the big success is the initial getting local private sector to invest. And that's a key role donors can play in de-risking those investments and partnering, whether it's an abattoir in Ethiopia or a private sector vet services. So there's all sorts of opportunities for local private sector. Our team in Nigeria and Abuja has worked with the private sector as part of the global food security strategy development process and harnessed $170 million worth of private sector, not exactly financial commitments, but identified opportunity to align private sector investment, not exclusively in the Northeast, but inclusive of the Northeast. So there's definitely on the minds of our team out there. Uh, and, and when we talk about resilience and bringing all these different pieces of investment together, and I said earlier, each delivers on its own mandate. Feed the Future's mandate is to bring that private sector, to bring that innovation 
to these areas that most people have traditionally thought of, that's where we do humanitarian assistance, that's where we send in the military, to begin to think about the, the private sector opportunity. Um, there were a ton of questions here, a, a little bit on uh, conflict. Um, it's, again, not a narrow feed the future question, but a broader whole of USAID, whole of US government, and eventually whole of Nigerian government question about working cross ministerially to deal with the fact that issues like conflict, whether it's herder, uh, farmer conflict, or other, undermine other sectoral outcomes. So when we talk about why food security should be interested in conflict prevention, and why we might actually use some food security resources to deal with conflict mitigation and building the ability of institutions to deal with conflict, it's because we have to in that context to achieve food security outcomes. So we don't need to be so siloed that we can say, well, we don't have conflict funding, therefore we can't address the major reason why we can't achieve our food security outcome. We try to bring direct conflict funding and programming in where we can, and we build conflict sensitivity, and even greater than sensitivity, actually conflict mitigation into our sectoral programming. Um, there's lots to answer, so I think I'll, I'll pass that along to the rest of the group. I get mine get to pick early. I can leave the tough ones for you guys. Um, just a few on uh, the question of about doing research, market research. That question came over here, how to conduct it, right? Uh, I would just uh, connect you to one of our researchers. We just finished uh, uh, a combined full-scale survey and focus group discussion. It said our objective as part of Kamana's commitment to learning was to look back a year after markets had ended and ask what had changed, what had changed on resilience, what had changed on sustainability, who had continued adopting. So there's a lot of outcomes. Carol Martin is one of the co-authors of that report. She's right here, and we have copies of it for you if you'd like to see it. So that may provide you some specifics. On the role of monitoring, I just I have to say that I, I do believe, I think that was an IBTCI question, uh, that, that I, w what we have seen is consistent, uh, very often putting aside instruments that have already been developed. And I know we've looked closely at the FuseNet instruments that the U.S. government has invested in for, I don't know, 25 years. There are very good household modeling activities done under that, under that program in Nigeria with a great deal of uh, detail that can be capitalized upon with additional questions or additional focus to get at issues of change household behavior and especially with regards to resilience. So we think that's something that should be kept in mind. Um, I would say on the private sector engagement that was solutions, something that's your organization, uh, something about uh, private sector and uh, how do we engage private sector. I mentioned earlier the, the facilitation process that had happened in the um, Niger River Delta region. Our, our take after the years we've worked on markets is an incredible willingness to engage, the for the private sector to engage. What is needed is a platform and a viable, uh, a viable way of doing that engagement, and I'd say government must be involved in that process, and there must be some additional parties, but they are ready to stand up and begin looking at specific interventions around budgetary inclusion and support to existing extension agencies, et cetera, that will, and, and investment facilitation that is uh, very um, viable. And I think there's been a lot that's come out. I know we and others have been involved with political economy analysis and thinking and working politically that it is, provides a lot of tools that help that kind of input from the private sector turn into specific solutions in policy. 
starting with the conflict question, um, in my view, none of this holds up without a much deeper investment in, in the peace building and governance side of things. When I, was, uh, when I was there, I met with AID, and as far as I know, they have no peace building programs in Borno State. Okay, and they think they have one in the whole country, and I think it's in, in the middle belt. So it's, it's too little, whatever it is, it's too, it's too little. Um, I think that we definitely see conflict as a system and that the initial grievances and underlying tensions uh, evolve and morph and change as people get you know, overcrowded into these garrison areas and, and uh, have all sorts of new, new continuous shocks and stresses around conflict. So it has to be addressed as, we, as part of this resilience risk assessment. What are, we, uh, what are we mitigating that may be coming down in the, in the future? Um, the other thing on data collection, I would just, um, again, I can point you to the stress methodology and how we did that in, in, the, in the Borno area in some of the more conflict-affected areas. But I do think that these heavy baselines, that's very traditional for a Feed the Future, is not on. You know, I think we're going to have to really come up with different approaches. Uh, it, first of all, you might not be there a year later. You may be working some other place. Third-party monitoring is going to be a must if, if AID is going to do this, because they're not going to be able to get to some of these places to see them themselves. And I think that's a huge constraint to both learning and making the case for what, um, uh, how do we move it forward. Um, I think um, that in terms of the question about working with local organizations, OTI's model, the Office of Transition Initiative, I think has really uh, carved out that territory best in AID in terms of fixed obligation grants, figuring out how to engage directly with organizations that are not necessarily capable of managing money uh, and AIDs, all of the regulations and requirements. So I think there's a, there's a real need, as Greg has already pointed out, to figure out how OTI does its business and overlay it with the Feed the Future agenda. So I was super excited to hear that, um, that that's part of, part of this initiative. I'd like to comment very quickly on the farmer-herder conflict, and there's this great supposition that uh, water access and uh, you know access to um, um, <clears throat> to land for grazing is the kind of a sole cause of of that problem in many circles. I think that's the thought. Uh, I think that. Um, Conflict needs to be researched more deeply. Um, um, in looking at data on Boko Haram, for example, compared to transhumans-related attacks, you note that in 2018 there were um, more people killed as a result of uh, Fulani herdsmen attacks than by Boko Haram. Um, and you, it begs the question, if you look at the graph over time, it begs the question, where did all this violence come from um, and the weapons that are used? Um, Growing up as a kid in Nigeria, Fulani herdsmen carry sticks. I think there's some underlying factors, and I go back to the term angst and anxiety that are involved. I think it's, uh, I think poverty has a lot to do with it. I think we need to be creative in understanding the role of religious fundamentalism in this, the possible uh, position. I mean, uh, uh, role of, of religious fundamentalism. Uh, with ISWA, um, uh, with ISIS kind of looking around in the region, we need to think about the possibility that there may be some radicalization going on. And we need to think about the possible relationship between Boko Haram and, and the herdsmen. Um, only then can we begin to talk about comprehensive solutions. Um, in terms of peace building, 
We need to get the security agencies or the, the policymakers at the security level to really understand that the, the military approach is just not going to work with many of these things. Um, the one thing I know from my experience there is that uh, these insurgents are very smart, smarter than we think. And they also have conviction. Uh, other than their foot soldiers, their leaders are not necessarily paid to do what they do. They believe strongly in what they're doing. Um, so I think it's extremely important that um, we convince those who make decisions that peace building has a place as part of the solution set. Um, conflict prevention has uh, space as part of the solution set. And I think once they make that adoption, the landscape will change tremendously. I take the question about the private sector. I, I take your comment to imply the US private sector. Um, um, the Nigerian private sector is extremely important, but yes, I think foreign direct investment could make a huge difference in transforming things in Nigeria. I think by and large, I think the government understands the importance of FDI, the dynamics of how you actually manage um, the image of the country, conflict in the country, crisis in the country to enable the, an optimal flow of FDI is I think what the challenge is. One of the things I've seen the Chinese do, and I'll be done in one second, is they're leveraging this concept of free trade zones um, um, and enterprise zones in Nigeria. Um, if American businesses are concerned about going to Nigeria, there are spaces within Nigeria, and we all know several of those spaces, that are in but not of Nigeria, right? And these are, that's the free trade zone thing. I mean, I was at the ONE facility. They've got their own police, right? Um, they have an expedited process by which many of the things that businesses are concerned about in Nigeria can be handled. Uh, Ladol is another one around Lagos. These are deliberate places, islands that have been set up. I can imagine a, and I'll be done in a second, I can imagine a, a program, it's a future program, that's kind of a food innovation, kind of a free trade zone. Of course, it has to be negotiated with the Nigerian government, where youth can come and work, where American businesses that are interested in uh, producing for export um, can set up their facilities where you de-risk the security concerns and you, know, you de-risk uh, uh, the, 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 the zone, uh, you offer special incentives. I mean, we worry about people in South America traveling to, uh, coming all the way 2,000 miles to, to, to the U.S. southern border. I've always imagined, what would it, how easy would it be to actually set up islands and places over there where they can actually get jobs? <coughs> You know, so I see those as part of the possibilities for, for Nigeria. They're, it's part of the Nigerian set of rules uh, or laws. Uh, you can establish this almost islands within Nigeria. And I think these are places where local businesses, foreign businesses, with a little bit of incentives from the U.S. government would want to locate. Kids can find jobs there, and uh, that would reduce um, some of the tension. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Soji. Please join me in thanking all of our very thoughtful panelists. Thank Kimberly and CSIS for giving us this opportunity. Uh, thank you. Can we go back? Yes.
Thank you to the panel. Thank you, Kimberly, for, for sort of hosting this, this, act, this, this meeting this morning. And thanks to all of you in the audience who were amazingly quiet as people were discussing deep concepts of, of conflict and, and reorganization and so forth. Um, I've been given the opportunity just to say a few words in closure here and to encourage you all to take this, this report and read it and think about it and get back to Kimberly with all your criticisms and get back to Julie and me with all the things that you think were really good. So, <laughs> But uh, it has been a pleasure working on this project because as Kim Kimberly said, I did move to Nigeria five decades ago, 1969. People said, why the heck are you going to Nigeria now? The Biafran War was, was on, it was hot and heavy, bombing on both sides, hunger, conflict. But in fact, it was an exciting time to be in Nigeria, especially after peace was negotiated, because oil came on stream, people were looking forward to a revenue stream that would support growth of this new, newly reunited nation. And one of the big the big new policies was going to be universal primary education. Every Nigerian child was going to at least be assured of a primary education. So that was five decades ago. And a lot of those, a lot of those hopes have not come true. Oil has come on, but it's come on so strongly, and as we write in the report, the, the public sector of the country is virtually dependent upon oil exports. And so the diversity of the economy with regard to participation in the global economy is, is, is minimal. The price of oil dropped in 2014-2015 by 50%. The entire revenue for the government dropped in one year by 50%. So it has been a mixed blessing at best and a continued source of irritation and conflict at worst. But today we've talked about, and our panel I thought did an amazing job, of sort of addressing kind of the, the core motivation for the report, which was looking at Feed the Future, make, designating Nigeria as a target country, and a target country that is fragile, conflict-affected, exacerbated by climate, very prone to climate change, in fact. And, and therefore, you know, we took kind of a looking forward look. Yes, it's, it's had some Feed the Future aligned kind of programs in the past, which Phil very ably represented. But in fact, Nigeria is going to be a new ball game for Feed the Future. I think it's going to be possible, and I think our panel very clearly expressed that it will be possible to build on success and experience from Feed the Future Phase 1, 
but that in four Feed the Future Phase Two, and especially in Nigeria, there will have to be a change in the model of operation, the model of working, the kind of linear, the kind of linear pattern that um, Dina recounted in in areas of conflict. That first you have conflict, and then you resolve the conflict, and you provide humanitarian assistance, and then you start moving toward development. That kind of linear model. When you look at the Nigerian situation with conflict for different reasons scattered all over the country, with climate change and natural disasters occurring in different areas of the country, that linear model simply can't work. There has to be a simultaneity of action, taking into account what can be done. I think as Dina pointed out so clearly, in, in areas where conflict is, is driving the action, or is in the Niger Delta where conflict is still, in many cases, driving, driving the, um, the, the activities today. I think what we've also found that going forward, Feed the Future in Fragile and Conflict-Affected Countries is going to have to respond to changing contexts. And I think, again, our panelists talked about how, yes, this year it looks like this, but we have a new election coming in, we have new leaders coming in, we have new governors coming in at the state level. There are going to be changes in that context which are going to require Feed the Future and the larger USG program in Nigeria to actually adapt, to modify, to rethink. And I loved what Greg said about sort of deeply thinking about what needs to be done, what can be done, what would be the most useful to do. I think the, ins the, the scale of Nigeria, we emphasize in the report, is kind of an opportunity. 190 million people makes a big market. A huge, diverse agroecology makes for a lot of possible niches of opportunity for production. But on the other hand, it also provides super challenges when financing is not exactly, shall we say, totally in line with the scale of the activity. I think that we've seen humanitarian assistance in Northeast Nigeria just zoom up in the last three, two and a half to three years. But the question is, can that level of humanitarian assistance and the level of health assistance, which has been going to Nigeria, be sustained, and how can it complement a much smaller amount of Feed the Future resources? So I think we're looking, as Greg said, at, at sort of really being sensitive to the conflict situation, but also un understanding that, in fact, the slide back into poverty is something that needs to be kept in view. And doing things which build resilience of people communities, systems, the nation, to really move ahead in spite of challenges, I think, was what we came up with here at this, um, at this roundtable. The report, I think, describes in much more detail than we actually addressed this morning the sort of multiplicity of risks which are faced by population systems and the country in Nigeria. But I think the panel correctly emphasized the opportunities. And I think that was good. And I, again, would hope that that's one of the big takeaways from, from today. Because I think the importance of addressing them, going back to Johnny Car Ambassador Johnny Carson, and his, his point that Nigeria is an important country for the US as a partner in Africa, 
It's important just in terms of Africa because it's so big and it has so much economic power that in fact, looking, taking the opportunity lens is actually a great lens to take. Even though myself, I'm a pessimist and so therefore I really look at the risks a lot more. But I think the consensus that I heard on the panel is that now really is the time to think deeply about integrating humanitarian work development investments, and peace building. And I was happy that several of you in, in asking the questions, in, in questions really focused in on this kind of peace building investment, that there are, in fact, activities which can foster better conversations, better relations, and identify, and I have some bones to pick with, with Prof here, um, identify some specific things that need to be changed in order for people who are at the edge of conflict to be able to get past it. So with that, that's a quick summary in my view of kind of some of the big issues and the big takeaways that I'm coming out of this, this session with. I want to congratulate Greg on participating. Glad the shutdown did not keep you from participating. Because I think you provided at least for me, a really solid sort of reassurance that USAID is taking this new strategic objective of resilience seriously. But it, you're doing it with evidence, doing it seeking information, allowing us to push you. <laughs> and looking, I'm looking around the room, I suspect there are other people who will want to push you and get back to you and say, well, what about this? What about that? But I think <laughs> but I think it's that reassurance that you're open to it, that the door is already opening and you're looking and thinking and developing new ideas already. And the organizational changes at USAID should support that. And some of the, the more detailed conversation you all had about procurement was, was very helpful. The one thing that was missing in today's discussion, and I would draw your attention to it if you, as you read the report, is we didn't discuss much the nutrition challenge. The program, the USAID program, or the USG program in Nigeria has been very much focused on health in the last decade, very much focused on health. And we all know that water and sanitation, vaccinations, mother care, the age of marriage of adolescent girls, which is 15.3 in northern Nigeria, 50 years after quote unquote universal primary education. Um, these are all really important issues. And so I think that better sort of coming as part of resilience, recognizing human nutrition as a fundamental building block for building human capital is absolutely crucial. While yes, there are lots of smart, educated youth out there, there are lots of kids who grew up stunted and not, in educate, not educated and are not gonna be able to be as successful entrepreneurially as we just talked about them. And again, I think the question of adolescent girls, particularly in northern Nigeria, is really a, a major challenge. I would direct you all for weekend reading to Hillary Matfess's book about women in, in the, and Boko Haram, because I thought it was a way of looking at a conflict through a lens that we normally don't do, which is looking at it from the perspective of young girls. And that with that, let me close this session, keep an eye on nutrition, get back to Greg on, <laughs> with regard to following up on, on the commitment to sort of building a, a practicable and impactful 
Resilience Program. And to our implementing agencies and, and in, information partners here um, with their contributions to actually making this work operationally. So thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here and sort of thinking about these issues again. Thanks.